Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the June 1st edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, June's a big month uh, for us in politics. There will be uh, primary runoffs later this month that will finally fix all of the uh, candidates who will be running in the general elections. Uh, By the way, our newsletter, which comes out later today, uh, features uh, stories about what runoff elections are going to be on that ballot. You can subscribe to it by going to gpb.org slash newsletters. Um, And of course, also, by the end of the month, the Supreme Court will have released a number of very important opinions. We're going to finally see how they decide to come down on abortion. We're going to see an important uh, gun uh, case resolved, uh, the New York case, which has major implications for carrying a weapon in public, and uh, others that we'll be talking about on this show as the month proceeds. But right now, I've got a terrific panel for today's show, so I want to get right to them and talk about the news of today. Patricia Murphy is with us. She's AJC political reporter and, of course, writes the Political Insider column, which you read in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays, and she oversees The Jolt, a great roundup every day at AJC.com of political news. Patricia, thanks for joining us today. It's good to have you here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, We've also got with us Donna Lowry, host of GPB-TV's Lawmakers, the longest-running show on Georgia television. Uh, How are you doing, Donna? I'm great today, Bill, and glad to be with you. I'm, I didn't realize it was June 1st. I forgot until you said that. So, whoa, we're uh, here. Yeah, yeah, it is. We're almost halfway through the year. Professor Andre Gillespie, professor of political science and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andre, thank you for joining us as well today. Happy to be here. So let's get right to it. Um, and, and fair warning, there are going to be a number of items we're going to talk about today that actually uh, evoke Donald Trump's name. Uh, so, Patricia, let's start right off with the first one. Uh, after the results of the GOP election between uh, David Perdue and Brian Kemp resulted in that landslide victory for um, Brian Kemp, you've written a column this morning which tells us that Donald Trump is already casting doubts on the legitimacy of that election. Talk to us about that, please. Yes. So yesterday morning in The Jolt, we reported that um, some allies of Brian Kemp's are planning to make overtures toward Donald Trump um, in an attempt to neutralize Donald Trump and not to seek his endorsement for Brian Kemp, but just to keep him quiet on the topic of Brian Kemp, because uh, there's a lot of anxiety among Republicans that Donald Trump will have a replay of 2021 and become so unhinged about losing an election, in this case, the Georgia primaries, that he will then go on to create a lot of, um, to undermine Georgia elections, to attack uh, the people who are on the ballot, and just generally dampen 
uh, the enthusiasm of those Trump supporters to go back out to the polls and vote in November and that all important um, November general election. And so the uh, Kemp team is looking for a way to head that off at the pass. Uh, we reported that at about 7 o'clock in the morning. By about 9.30 in the morning, Donald Trump had uh, sent out a blast to his supporters with just a single line, something stinks in Georgia. And it linked to, a, I can't call it an article because that connotes some sort of factual <laughs> representation. Um, it's sort of an essay by a far-right writer who said that, um, you know, and this is, I have to say, completely false, uh, that there is evidence of major fraud in Georgia in the primaries. But her evidence is the fact that Brian Kemp won by with 74% of the vote. And in her words, that never happens in American politics. And in my column, I said, actually, it happens all the time in American politics. <laughs> and on Tuesday night, Andrew Clyde won with 78% of the vote. And Marjorie Taylor Greene won with 70% of the vote. Um, Drew Ferguson, the Republican congressman from uh, southwest Georgia, won with 82 percent of the vote. So landslide elections happen frequently, especially with poor candidates and losing messages. And um, that's the evidence of uh, fraud this time around. It's ridiculous. Most importantly, and I think this is so important, none of the Trump-backed candidates who lost have questioned their own elections. They all came out uh, within 24 hours to concede those elections, to congratulate their Republican opponents, and to say, we support you for November. So there is a big split, not just between Trump and Republicans, but between Trump's own candidates and Trump's rhetoric on this. The, uh, I guess it's a blog that Trump linked to is by a woman named Emerald Robinson. She used to be the White House correspondent for Newsmax, but she, what, she is so far to the right and has made so many really completely outrageous claims. She's even too far right for Newsmax, which tells you something about her. She says, let's begin with a basic truth that the most that most of the corporate media continually ignores or obscures. President Trump endorsement is the single most powerful force in the universe of American politics, and then goes on, as you point out, Patricia, and says nobody wins by 74% of the vote. So, all right. So in some ways, that's a sideshow, Andra. We get that. That's Trump being Trump. But on the other hand, it's not, because we do have elections coming up this fall. And the fact of the matter is that every time something like this happens, it does, in fact, raise, for some people, suspicions about the integrity of our elections. Yes? Um, I'm talking about it has certainly primed people to think that there's election fraud and to start looking for things where there isn't a problem. And I think that that is the problem about such irresponsible discussion of things. Um, I think the big question here is, um, you know, while there's some consistency in talking about voter fraud here in, in, in a landslide election versus a close election, I think the bigger question here is how is, how is it believable? Um, and so, you know, this is an empirical question. I would want uh, to test it or have somebody else test it. I think that the difference this time around is that people are going to be less likely to believe that there was fraud in an election where the Trump candidate loses by 50 points. That's just that would be a colossal waste of energy and time and resources to rig an election that far in advance. I, I, I recall the story um, since I wasn't there. Um, about uh, Illinois in, in, in 1960, where uh, JFK Sr. said, 
I paid for a win. I didn't pay for a last <laughs> Um So, yeah, like, nobody in their right mind, like, would waste that much money um, rigging an election that far. You have to assume that even if there was rigging, um, that, like, that the natural vote would have still said Brian Kemp won this. And, and let me just be very clear. I think that there was absolutely nothing nefarious in the election. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is also grumbling, like Brad Raffensperger won. And if there was a race where Democratic crossover voting actually mattered, it was probably in that Secretary of State's race. Um, and, uh, you know, he's like, well, Democrats illegally voted. It's like Democrats didn't illegally vote in anything. We have open primaries. And so, again, Donald Trump, like, if, if it's unfavorable, it's fake, it's rigged, it's manufactured. Um, and if I don't get my way, then obviously something was wrong. That's just a sign of, of, of immaturity, right? I know six-year-olds who can understand this concept a lot better than this man can seem to do at almost 76. Uh, Andra, I have to say, you take me back when you talk about the Illinois election. I was an eighth grader in that 1960 election in Chicago. My family was, they were big Nixon supporters. And so when you talk about Joe Kennedy saying he had bought the election for uh, his son in Illinois, uh, that was the way my parents uh, looked at that election and Mayor Daley, the great legendary Mayor Daley's uh, efforts to give the victory to uh, JFK. So thank you for reminding me of, of, of all that. But Donna, back to the present. Um, so I think Patricia's imp- really important point here is that no one who Trump supported uh, went along with this lie. You know, Jody Heiss uh, conceded right away. Purdue conceded immediately as well. Um, So have all the other candidates who Trump endorsed who lost. I guess that's a good sign. I guess that tells us that that, um, at least these uh, uh, candidates were not willing to uh, in any way further this absurd lie. Yeah, and I think in Georgia that's more important than ever that because of the focus in Georgia that the candidates recognize how it is necessary to really emphasize let's end this. Once the votes are counted, believe them. Patricia quoted uh, Butch Miller, who um, conceded as lieutenant governor to uh, Burt Jones, both of them senators in Georgia State senators. And in his concession, for Butch Miller to say, okay, you know, this I've conceded and let's push that. When, once the votes are counted, they are counted, we believe them, and, and that's it. We accept the election as it is. I think in Georgia in particular, among the Republicans who re- recognize that if they don't um, kind of do something to make sure that the people understand, hey, listen, this is... Um, the, the, our elections are fair and you need to vote and believe what you voted on, then we're in real trouble within not only the Republican Party, but as a state. And I think there's a lot of this big lie fatigue that must be going on where they're just tired of hearing about this, that it keeps going on and on and on. I'm glad you uh, brought that up because that was the next thing I was going to ask Patricia. I get that it requires a certain amount of speculation, although for all I know, Patricia, as a reporter, you may have heard this from sources. 
is there some fatigue about this? Are there Republicans out there who are just tired of Donald Trump repeating this same theme over and over again? They may want to vote for him for president in 2024. That's another matter. But are they just tired of this constant uh, lying about elections? So, yes. And that's why Brian Kemp won with 74% of the vote in a GOP primary. And that's why Brad Raffensperger um, won with 18, won by 18 points over Jody Heiss. And Jody Heiss's primary and almost only uh, uh, piece of his platform was that the 2020 elections were rigged. Um, that is that has worn thin on GP voters, and it's also not the most important piece for GOP voters. And when I talk to um, voters out at these events, they'll say, do I think that 2020 was completely clean? No. Is any election ever completely clean? You know, you just it, you have felt it. You felt the intensity of that argument drain away. And there are other important pieces that they find to supersede any question about election integrity, um, which I think, first of all, tells you that they don't 100 percent believe that that election was stolen because they'll put other things ahead of that. The biggest piece I hear is electability. Who can win in these elections in November? And particularly for Brian Kemp, Republican voters said to me, look, I want I will vote for anybody who can defeat Stacey Abrams. And I believe that Brian Kemp is the one because Brian Kemp has defeated Stacey Abrams and David Perdue just lost to John Ossoff. So I think it's a you know, the election integrity piece has been, first of all, I think, uh, not neutralized, but answered by the GOP legislature with SB 202. I think Republicans see that as evidence that things have changed. Democrats, of course, say that was a change that was entirely unnecessary. Um, but it's just it does not pack the same punch as it used to. It does in those Trump rallies. So if you only go to Trump rallies, if you only go to those hardcore activist GOP events, you will hear the thunderous applause. But if you get outside of that bubble and a lot of these candidates never got outside of that bubble, you'll start to hear a lot of, a lot more issues coming into play, and it's just not packing the same punch. You know, I, I agree. There are echo chambers. So the same way you have to tell Democrats to get off Twitter because Twitter doesn't sort of <laughs> encapsulate the whole sum of what people think, right? You can't go to a Trump rally. Now, the one thing that I would say, and Patricia's probably seen this more than I have because I, I don't haven't done rallies in the face of the pandemic, is – you know, people should pay attention to the number of people who are showing up. And it's just like, hmm, that should be a sign. People don't agree with you. But if people are, uh, you know, held in on confirmation bias, right, they're only going to look for the things that agree with their point of view. And sooner or later, you kind of have to uh, get past what you wish um, and what you would like to see and sometimes just see things for what they are, because that's going to actually help you um, be able to move forward and to, and to plan a strategy. But I think probably, the, you know, the one other thing that I would say about this is, um, Donald Trump still holds sway, even if he doesn't hold as much sway as some people thought um, in elections. But I think you have to ask yourself, why are Republicans giving somebody who is mercurial, somebody who behaves ir ir irrationally sometimes, uh, this much power to be the kingmaker in one's party? Um, especially when I think that there's a lot of evidence that he's leading from behind. Um, and so I understand that there is this like, you know, following that, you know, makes up anywhere from 20 to 33 percent, um, you know, uh, of the Republican base. But 
uh, when you keep on indulging this kind of behavior, right, now you're, now you're afraid you're on pins and needles on the back end of it. It's like you don't have to be that afraid, right? You could just tell him to shut up and go and stay in Mar-a-Lago. Um, and he wouldn't necessarily do it, but you actually now have some evidence that there are, are situations in which you can beat him. So why not let that happen? You know, that's the only advice so I would give I, to Republicans. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt that last sentence. Uh, Andre and then Donna, you weigh in on this as well. Andre, it's interesting. I want to follow up on what you just said about how Republicans have given Trump so much importance in uh, their party and, and in uh, elections. Because, and here's why. Because I'd be interested if you agree with this. It strikes me that in that that history, American history will record that during that first week, first few weeks of January of uh, uh, after the presidential election and after the insurrection, Republicans had an opportunity to take Donald Trump down. They had the chance. They could have gone along with the impeachment. Um, and even if they didn't completely support the impeachment uh, for whatever reasons, the uh, senators didn't want to vote to to convict him, they could have taken away his power. And when they missed that chance, when Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell got right back behind him, it started us on the track we're on today. Do, do, do you think that's correct? That that's how history will look at that moment in time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think their behavior was cowardly, right? They they put their uh, hand up, and you know, it wasn't a one hundred percent repudiation of the um, of the big lie, and then also of the events that happened. You have this counter narrative that came up that was speculating that it really wasn't Trump supporters who were doing it, and and that was ridiculous, and we should have shut that down, but they didn't. And when people saw where their base was, they were unwilling to see political ground or to risk losing elections for the right thing. And so I think ultimately history is going to look. Um, at these folks and call them cowardly. And sooner or later, I think we need to call the relationship between Trump and the Republican Party what it is. And so it's one part grift and it's a many parts abusive. Um, and so if this were a workplace relationship, if this were a personal relationship, we would all kind of understand just how terrible Donald Trump is and how he shouldn't be in charge um, of things, you know, outside. Like there's a reason why he, he works at a family owned company, because if he worked anyplace else, he'd have been fired a long time ago. Um, and so uh, the uh, Republicans kind of need to stand up. And if they want their party to have credibility in the near term and even in the long term, it would be better to exercise this malignancy now than to allow it to continue to metastasize. Even though I argue that Trump isn't, Trumpism is still there. And those attitudes, that populism that's tinged with racial resentment and, and social dominance orientation is still sort of a problem that's going to have to be addressed with. But you need to deal with this problem now and don't expect it to just kind of go away quietly. Donna? Yeah, it, you know, it's a dysfunctional family. I mean, what happened in, in that January after the um, after that 2020 election is that the, this dysfunctional family couldn't figure out what what to do, where, where to go, how to handle things. I think there was still a uh, feeling that Trump had the power and they wanted to sort of hold on to it, but they missed that opportunity. And what they've done now is just let it grow and grow this whole dysfunction within the party. And what they realize, and especially in Georgia, I think, is that it is breeding like this fear and distrust in, in not only um, you know, the election system, which in Georgia they tried to fix with the, you know, with the election bills, but the, this, the major institutions that you might have this 
people might have fear and distrust distrust of our major institutions, our um, court systems, our school systems. And what we've seen, what we saw this past um, General Assembly, is that there was some fear. Like, let's shore up, you know, what's going on in schools and make sure we have more going on there and um, we have more parents have more of a say. So I think there's there's uh, they did miss an opportunity and now they're trying to walk it back in some kind of way. Um, we, we do have the um, lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, who was one of the few that, that actually stood up. But I have the feeling that there are there are a lot of people who are outwardly saying one thing, you know, support for Trump. But I think what the recent elections, the recent primary showed is there are a lot of people behind the scenes who are just fed up with it. And that's why the votes went the way they did for Kemp and others in statewide offices. Andra? So, I mean, to that point, um, you know, for years I have a friend who's a lobbyist. And so, you know, more Demo- Democrat. Um, but like everybody talks and, they, and he would tell me years ago, oh, people hate Trump. And so I'm tired of the behind the scenes thing. If you hate the guy and you think he's stupid, say so publicly. Right. There's no <laughs> need to deal like with this with kid gloves. Right. He has proven himself unstable and unfit for the office time and time again. Patricia. Yeah, I'll say that um, I think Brian Kemp has learned that uh, Republicans, uh, you know, for better or for worse, cannot get elected, especially statewide, without those Donald Trump supporters. So Brian Kemp has taken pains to never say anything about Donald Trump to undercut him because that sort of that Trump world internalizes attacks on Donald Trump as attacks on them personally, because Donald Trump tells them that. They've tried to steal, not this election from me, they've tried to steal it from you. He says that to his supporters. And so Republicans um, really are walking this very fine line about, uh, in a way to try and keep those supporters, um, and in some cases, without buying into everything that is Trumpism. And I think Brian Kemp is one of the few Republicans in the country who has managed to walk that line so far. So I I think what's interesting about this, before we move on, is, you know, it's important to me, uh, uh, building on what you just said, Patricia, right, a, 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 a Brian Kemp was very smart in the fact that he his line was he's angry at me I'm not angry at him and 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 his whole theme was I don't have anything against Donald Trump I, I can't control how he treats me at the same time people like Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger won their elections up by talking about issues other than the stolen election they talked about non-trumpy issues so the reason I say all that is, when I hear from listeners who say, you're attacking Donald, you're anti-Republican, you hate Donald Trump and the Republican, there's a difference. In many ways, despite the fact he controls the party, Patricia, Donald Trump is an outlier when it comes to, you know, Republican versus Democrat as we look at elections, right? Yep. Well, not just elections. If you look at Brian Kemp's record and and why he got reelected by Republicans, it wasn't just what he was saying and not saying about Donald Trump. He took specific actions that angered Donald Trump very much. He appointed Kelly Loeffler over Doug Collins, which was really the first kind of the first uh, the first shot fired. He didn't really care what Donald Trump thought about that, even though he knew 
he opened up the state uh, before Donald Trump gave him that blessing during COVID. Trump didn't want to look bad in case something went bad in Georgia. Um, and then, of course, the election, um, just simply not entertaining the calls, not even answering the phone call when Donald Trump was calling about um, overturning uh, the Georgia results. And so Kemp has both this rhetoric that is not anti-Trump and a record that is independent of Trump. And I think that's you have to have both to sort of survive in this world as a Republican right I, now. I think, I think that's important. I think that's important. Is that All right? Look, let's get to our first break on the show. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about the Democratic side of the uh, general election. We'll do that with our panel in just a moment. Andrew Gillespie, Donna Lowry, Patricia Murphy joined me for today's Political Rewind. Patricia, uh, while there's still questions as to whether Republicans can heal the wounds that have divided them uh, for quite some time now here in the state of Georgia, on the other side, Democrats emerged from the primaries uh, with their candidate for governor set. She had no opposition, but now she's official. Now she's able to create the leadership a fund that uh, uh, was passed into law a couple of sessions back uh, to raise even more money uh, than she already would have been able to raise. And I think it's important to talk about the fact that Democrats are are taking advantage of the disunity over on the Republican side to emphasize how united they are uh, in their uh, campaign messaging and in their approach to winning the general election in the fall. Have I got that right? I would say Democrats are mostly united. Um, I think we need to take a look at um, the seventh district race between Lucy McBath and uh-huh. Carolyn Bordeaux. I mean, I think this is sort of um, not a war of attrition, maybe a battle of ideas. I'm not exactly sure what we want to call it, but there is certainly some space between the more progressive uh, uh, portion of the Democratic electorate, uh, the more moderate portion of the Democratic electorate. And even within Stacey Abrams' own messages, we're hearing, um, we've always heard this this aggressive, progressive, pro-voter, um, pro-democracy, sort of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, message from Stacey Abrams. But we're also now starting to see TV ads from her saying, I- I've always done this with the help of Democrats, independents, and Republicans trying to bring people together. So I, I don't think it's a 100% surefire um, path ahead for Democrats. I think they're obviously much more united. A lot of that, so much of that is because of Stacey Abrams, her sheer star power, um, and uh, Democrats' allegiance to her. But there, there are definitely rifts. Um, even within some uh, state Senate races that we've seen, primaries against each other, mm. um, a, a more progressive versus a more moderate, um, there are some rifts between those two competing messages and a decision about does the past require breaking off one of those pieces of the party in order to have an authentic, successful message in November. I think that's really interesting uh, because I, I, Andra, when I think about what Stacey Abrams was able to do in 2018 and then carried over into 2020, it was that she made it uh, clear that Democrats could uh, take on more progressive ideas, they could run more progressive campaigns and win millions of votes. I mean, that was a, a complete uh, uh, transformation of what the Democratic Party in Georgia had been before that. So it's interesting to hear Patricia say that she thinks there might be 
some uh, some issues, you know, some some tension between the more moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats, which is something that, of course, we see on the Hill in Washington. I don't think about it quite as much here in Georgia. Um, so, I mean, I think that we need to uh, I agree with Patricia. In fact, I wrote an article about it, which I'll talk about in a second. But um you know, I, I think it's important for us to realize that, you know, we're not probably not at the point where we're going to see fights in the General Assembly between Georgia's version of the squad and the problem solvers yeah. caucus. Right. Like that, that, like that's not where we are. But it is true that I think Georgia Democrats are a little bit farther, you know, left than they used to be. And that's because nationally Democrats are farther left than they used to be. But there's still a difference between being a Georgia Democrat versus a New York or a Massachusetts or a California Democrat. And so I think that, that that's important to kind of keep in mind. And so what I wrote about in the Army Journal of Law and Religion published earlier this year um, was about uh, the concept of using racially transcendent uh, messaging to try to uh, put uh, to try to reach out to voters. And in particular, those who do that actually do tend to be viewed as more moderate, mainstream, even a little conservative, right? Because in the 90s and the aughts, they tended to be more neoliberal in their orientation. Um, and there, there has been this discussion that, uh, you know, especially since the rise of Black Lives Matter and since 2018 with Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum in Florida, that uh, that wing of the party, um, which uh, uh, one of my friends uh, uh, entitled the, the, the Obama wing of the party, has gone away. Um, but the truth is, it's the Obama types who are usually better positioned to be able to win statewide office. And so Stacey Abrams nationally looks very progressive, right, because she's certainly liberal on social issues. Um, but we forget that she's the pragmatist who had to negotiate with the Republicans and for that reason didn't yeah. win um, support of progressives in the 2018 primary. Um, so what is very progressive and radical about, uh, about Abrams is her strategy. Her strategy wasn't to try to play and position herself to uh, centrist, to moderate, uh, to people who may have voted Republican in the past, that sort of shrinking center um, of, of Georgia politics that usually does make you kind of look more deracialized, more neoliberal, kind of more, more moderate. She said, let's just go find all the Democrats and get them to show up to vote. Right. But like that, but that GOTV strategy is somewhat radical, right? Because it wasn't, let's just placate to this elusive group of moderates who really vote Republican and have for a long period of time, right? Because that's not practical, right? And so that it's that pragmatism that I see there. And it's that pragmatism that I saw in 2018 as well. So I think that what she's doing is something that I call selective deracialization. So yeah, she's going to hit on those sort of hot button issues, especially ones with respect uh, 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 to race, because voting rights actually is a pretty mainstream democratic issue that's highly racialized, but in all honesty, Right. Like no Democrat is going to say, ooh, like, you know, she's too black for talking about voting. That's acceptable um, in Democratic circles. But you will see sort of like the differences in where uh, she you know, chooses to be pragmatic. So she's going to talk a lot about bread and butter economic issues. Right. When it comes to talking about policing, she's going to stand up for them. But she's not a defund person. Right. And I think that that's more of the dividing line these days than, you know, some of the things that we were talking about, like charter schools in the, the, the mid-aughts. Donna, yeah, the I, uh, Democratic—go ahead, Donna. 
No, no, I was just going to say, you know, the fact that Stacey Abrams looks more progressive is really what the Republicans have been pushing to make her look more progressive. Not that she is more progressive, but she so now she's got her. She seems to be reframing things to see to to reintroduce herself to the electorate. Right. So the ad that just came out, you know, a few weeks ago where she's introducing her family and you see her with her family life and those kinds of things kind of letting people know who she is a little bit more because who she is in many minds is what the Republicans have made her out to be um, more so than what people may remember from when she ran for governor before and now this national image that she has. So I think that is a big part of it that she, they did to, to look, to make sure people see her more as who she may really be. Than, than this this image that has been created of who she is as somebody who is not only interested in running for governor but running for president one day. So people people you know people have heard the same lines over and over again from the Republicans about who she is. She's really going to push for uh, the things that Andre talked about, but also for making sure people see who she who she is truly. I, I really appreciate the perspectives you all offered. You've kind of schooled me a little bit on, on how you see Stacey Abrams as opposed to the kind of progressive that I've seen her in many ways as being. So thank you for that. But uh, uh, Patricia, I do think it is uh, worth pointing out that uh, the, the Democratic Party of Georgia has now launched uh, its first, I guess they call it a unified commercial. It's against Brian Kemp. And they've taken him on in terms of what they would say are his far right ideas. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, over the weekend, Democrats also have unveiled mm. their um, coordinated campaign office, their first office in Fulton County. And so you feel up and down the ticket, even though some of these Democratic nominees have not been squared away and they will be once the uh, runoffs come and go. Um, you feel this unity up and down the ticket of Democrats that I do think right now um, Republicans are still trying to find. They are, Republicans are still trying to, trying to find, like, how are we going to keep our whole coalition together in order to get through November? And Democrats, who just feel this very consistent through line. And so that's why they're able to have these coordinated um, offices and this coordinated message. So in the message that that was uh, released today, uh, there's a new ad up today, uh, really taking Brian Kemp to task for signing uh, what Republicans call constitutional carry, but is in fact permitless carry, lifting any requirement to have a license to carry a gun um, in Georgia. And that is obviously not, I don't want to say newly resonant, but is in the headlines very much um, because of the terrible school shooting in Texas. It's, it just is on any, every single parent's mind, any child's mind, you know, this is, it is on your mind. How do we stop these things? And so um, the Democrats are putting out there. And by the way, Republicans have pushed through this incredible loosening of gun restrictions. Also in that ad uh, is a piece about abortion rights and reminding folks that Stacey Abrams and Democrats are um, kind of have this uh, pure view of abortion rights. It's a woman's right to decide. That also is newly resonant. A resonant. That is just a, a live wire in this election as the Supreme Court prepares to release its decision uh, that could overturn Roe v. Wade. And that would be an issue that women voters have to consider, many of them for the first time in their adult lives, that they live in a state where access to abortion could essentially be 
uh, criminalized. And so um, Democrats are really using the issues of the day and pushing Brian Kemp's record, which he just ran on uh, to win election in that Republican primary, pushing those most conservative uh, uh, far right pieces of his record. He will have a counter argument to that, of course. But this is what they're pushing early, early, early to tell voters this is who Republicans are. Donald Trump may not be on this stage in this particular situation, but don't fool yourself that these are far right um, extremist views in their in their description. And, and Donna, that's one of the reasons that at the very start of the show, I mentioned that we're going to be seeing some Supreme Court rulings uh, roll out at the end of the month that could have an impact on how people look at voting in the fall. I mean, the what are they going to say about abortion? In fact, was the leaked opinion uh, going to, is that going to be really what the court decides to do, to overturn Roe uh, completely and turn it back to the states to make their decisions? Um, the New York gun case, which will tell us how the Supreme Court feels about whether you can carry a, a gun outside your home openly uh, without a permit. So those things are going to have real resonance in elections around the country I assume they're going to have a degree of resonance, if not a lot of resonance, in, in uh, motivating voters here in Georgia. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think that right now is that it's kind of a, the lull. I feel like it's the um, just kind of uh, we're all waiting to see what's going to happen. And so I think each side is going to be pushing their messages. This is an, a real opportune time for the Democrats to push the messages to push the, the things that are in that ad that uh, Patricia mentioned and really take, take the time before these opinions come out to start shaping people's um, opinions of what, who the Democrats are and where they're going before everything hits. And then we'll figure out after, um, after these opinions come out from the, the U.S. Supreme Court where, where they take it from there. But this is the opportunity to really, really dig in. They had to wait until after the primary to, to see what was going to happen. And now they've got the money and the resources to be able to really kind of hone their message before we hear what happens um, by the end of the month. Andra? You know, that said, even if there's a surprise um, and the Supreme Court doesn't overturn Roe versus Wade or the Supreme Court says that New York can actually require this very, very strict uh, licensing program in order to carry guns, I don't think that the message is necessarily going to change. I think that already people um, have been activated and people are, are looking and seeing and probably measuring to see how effective this, these messages have been. Um, and these are still relevant policy issues, um, in part because uh, uh, people are going to try to create judicial controversies in order to get these things back to the court. So, um, you know, there, you know, we're still, you know, at, at a place where I don't think it's going to stop conservative states from uh, passing laws that are going to try to uh, restrict or curtail abortion rights. So I think people are, are still going going to bring it up. And just in terms of, of, of the gun issue, uh, there's still this legislative thing that needs to happen. And so if it gets solved in Congress, which it looks like it probably could get solved in Congress, Right. There's still going to be an exigency at the state level to do something to address these problems. You know, we're talking about like, you know, should you raise the, you know, age minimum age to buy an assault weapon or a rifle? Right. Like these are things that are still relevant and, and that state politics still has a, a, a lot to say about. So I expect that this is that like the, the issue table has been set. So inflation, abortion, guns are going to be very prominent parts of what we're going to be discussing, regardless of what the Supreme Court does this month. 
Yeah, to Andre's point, because Congress has become so calcified and so um, impotent in its in any ability to pass even the most um, sort of watered down version of any of these bills, it's I think voters feel right now it has never been more important what who your governor is. It's never been more important what your state legislature looks like and who your state representative is. Do they agree with you on these issues? I think people it's been so easy for so long people get into the voting with them like I don't I don't know who is this person who what state who's my state rep? I don't know. You know now it is so obvious how important it is when these issues are decided by the legislature and then with a pen strike by the governor. Um, what do you, what kind of a state do you want to live in? These elections determine that. And I think voters um, are understanding that in a way that, in the, that they hadn't um, in many years past. Okay, so I just want to ask one question about this. Because, um, Patricia, you and Andre have basically uh, said this, the table is set on issues like abortion and guns. But when it comes to turning out voters, uh, and Andre, you're the one who crunches data, so maybe I should ask you first. Does anger motivate people to get out and vote? If the Supreme Court overturns Roe, are Republicans who are glad it happened going to turn out to vote to thank their elected officials for having voted to outlaw abortion in the state? Or is it going to be people who support abortion rights who angrily go to the polls to punish uh, the other side? How does that tend to work? So and this is a really interesting question. So I, I, for uh, people who are pro-life, uh, for people who are Republican in particular, um, it may not be a thinking issue, but it could be tapping into anger about other things. Uh, that gets them to turn out to vote. So my friend Davin Phoenix is at UC Irvine, wrote this book called The Anger Gap, and it looks at sort of how feelings of anger can mobilize people to behavior. And so he's thinking about issues related to race and racism, and what he found were that uh, whites were angered, were more likely to turn out to vote, blacks who were angry were more likely to protest. Um, and so, uh, so it actually helps to explain why uh, Donald Trump embrace this full-throated racial populism, right? He got a group of latent voters who were mad to show up to vote. And now, to Patricia's earlier point, right, now the Republican Party can't control this really angry base that they should actually be trying to lead to think uh, better thoughts and to accept mm -hmm. diversity and to do all of these other things. They have this group of, of, of a base that they need for elections that they can't control. We got to ask ourselves, what do we do about that? So I think the, the question that we're going to be asking empirically this cycle is, can you get Democrats, can you get people of color mad about issues like abortion, um, about continued racial injustice, and channel that into higher participation rates? So, uh, you know, that's something that I'm sure people are actively studying right now. All right. I have got to get to the final break of the show. We'll be back with a little bit more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
know, if you listen to the show at least fairly regularly, you know I send out topic notes to our panelists the day before each show. Today is one of those days when I love the fact that I could ask one or two questions and this panel just takes it and runs with it and all of these different topics just go by the wayside because the conversation is so interesting. So I love having Andre Gillespie, Donna Lowry, and Patricia Murphy on the show today. Quick, a couple of quick items I want to get to because I mentioned them in the headlines. Number one, Donna, uh, Herschel Walker told Killer Mike uh, for a show that airs on WABE that Donald Trump is basically lying when he says that he was the one who uh, told uh, Herschel he ought to run. He says, I'm mad at him uh, for uh, doing that. Uh, I don't know whether that's the case or not, but it is interesting that as we've seen before, Herschel says he loves Donald Trump, but he is maintaining a distance from him in some ways. Yeah, and he is. And he did that in an audience he knew would be welcome to hear it, right? The Killer Mike audience would be more receptive to it. He is probably less likely to do that on maybe a Fox News show or something like that. Uh. Um, certainly Killer Mike. Um, you know, I, I know people who, who watched that interview and just felt like, you know, Killer Mike gave him softball, you know, questions and all of that. But that's his forum. That's who he is. That's the audience. And and as as uh, Walker, I mean, as Killer Mike said during the show that he actually Walker is the one that reached out to him about coming on the show, knowing what kind of a show it was going to be and what kind of an audience he was going to have. And so I think that that was certainly part of it. But for him to to make that um, to 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 actually say that, I thought was interesting. The other thing I thought was interesting in that interview was the. Um, the fact that he he talked about his um, his son who was gay and his support for him. He talked about his Christian faith in a way that really brings him up against Warnock, right? His opponent, who is a minister. So I think those were some things that strategically his people, you know, probably wanted to get out there. And Killer Mike was pretty receptive in, in at least taking taking it in. You know, he, he got into him on the, you know, talked about the CRT question um, a little bit that, that Walker didn't really answer. But on a, on a lot of ways, he was reaching an audience with this that he, he knew he needed to get to and to be able to say, well, you know, I was the one that, you know, that wanted to run and Donald Trump wasn't the one who actually got all of this going for me. Andrew, a quick comment from you on this. Yeah, so I mean, so I happen to know just because I taped my interview with someone right the day before that this interview was done on April 30th. Um, and so I, I didn't know like when oh. mine was going to air. So I don't know if Walker knew when his was going to air. I, you know, it's somewhat interesting. Like if we had known this before the primary one, I don't think it would have changed the results of the election. I think Herschel was going to walk away from this you know, uh, walk away with this election with ease, but it probably would have caused more problems. Like now that it's aired after the nomination, right, it almost looks like really convenient that if you were willing to people think uh, that, uh, that this uh, that that you had sort of the Trump endorsement or that Trump recruited you. The endorsement was clear, uh, but that Trump recruited you, and and so some people might have been more inclined to vote for you ahead of time. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around making this type of decision because this is something that strategically I would have advised him to keep under wraps. Like you know, I wouldn't have told him not to use this as a place to show my distance. Uh, real quick, has the Killer Mike ear interview aired already, or can people Last still week. see it? It's awesome. yeah, oh, okay, but it's up. probably it's probably on the website. All right. Um, Patricia, yep. let me change the subject if you don't mind. Um, we now know that Chris Carr has been subpoenaed, state attorney general, 
uh, to appear before Fonnie Willis's uh, special grand jury um, because he got a call from Trump uh, too, uh, asking him to uh, look at the election and the fraud that was obviously involved in Donald Trump's uh, losing it. We think Brad Raffensperger, I think, is going to appear before the grand jury tomorrow. So the parade is beginning. Yes, the parade is beginning. Fonnie Willis is a very meticulous prosecutor, and so she is very clearly going through every person in Georgia who had any direct contact or even indirect contact or knowledge of Donald Trump's um, machinations behind the scenes as this entire drama was playing out. And in Chris Carr's instance in particular, um, we reported that Carr got a call from Donald Trump the morning after um, he had raised an objection to a Supreme Court decision, look, or Supreme Court um, application, or I guess suit, in front of the Supreme Court that would have overturned um, multiple states' election results, including Georgia's. And Trump's request to him at the time was, well, don't go recruiting other AGs around the country to join in your objection. And uh, so anybody who had any contact with this scheme, um, Fonnie Willis is going after. This will be presented to the grand jury. We will see many more Georgians, many more Georgia Republicans put in front of this grand jury as they're gathering evidence and trying to decide if there is the evidence there to um, bring some kind of charges about election interference against Donald Trump. Uh, you said an important thing. You said Fonnie, um, you said a number of important things, but one of them was that Fonnie Willis is very methodical. So Patricia, anyone who's expecting that we're going to see some kind of activity anytime soon, and, and we should also point out, this special grand jury is not one that can uh, bring back a true bill indicting it. They can make recommendations that will then have to be pursued by uh, uh, Fonnie Willis's office. So no one, Patricia, should expect anything's going to happen soon on this, even if folks are sitting on pins and needles wanting something to move. No, she said this week that in a perfect world, they would be done within 60 to 90 days. But her quote was, but I don't live in a perfect world. So, so um, it, Andra, it, this is going to hit in the middle of an election cycle. Um, and 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 Donald Trump is already uh, uh, one analyst said has been bullying Fonnie Willis, and I think that's probably a fair description. Um, so no, no matter what happens on this, Fonnie Willis is going to be in the uncomfortable position of a law enforcement official who believes that she is doing something that is necessary because there may be criminal violations here. But uh, her ability to win on this politically is going to be interesting to watch. Well, I mean, I think this is an issue that sort of comes to courage, right? Is she doing this to win politically or is she doing this because it is the right thing? And again, Absolutely. there have been people who, are, who, who have stood up to Donald Trump, right, even if it was going to cost them in office, right? But just to defend Willis against some of the attacks, right, she's been trashed in ways that I would argue were racialized by Donald Trump. But I just want to remind all those Republicans who voted for her because you didn't like Paul Howard, right? You knew who you voted for. And she promised that type of integrity. So you shouldn't expect her to not apply it in this case. All right. I, we are completely out of time. And this is, again, one of those days when I wish I had another hour to talk with uh, you all. I don't. So Donna Lowry, uh, Andra Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, I'm so happy you were here for this terrific conversation uh, today. Um, we're going to be back, of course, with another show tomorrow. And uh, one of the things I want to take up is a really fascinating article that Heidi Prisbella, Washington reporter, put up on Politico 
uh, this morning, which talks about how Republican Party operatives in Michigan, but certainly it's going to happen elsewhere, are trying to train poll workers for challenging, particularly Democratic voters who come into the polls in the fall. It promises to create havoc, uh, I think, if in fact they follow through on much of what they're planning. We'll get to that and a lot more on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, we're out of time for today, so thank you all for being here. I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>